I would like to describe a field in which little has been done, but in which an enormous amount can be done. This field is not quite the same as the others in that it will tell us little of fundamental physics, but it will tell us much about the strange phenomena that occurred just below our perception. In contrast to the natural philosophers of the past, the scientists of this field delve into the recesses of nature and show how she works in her hiding places. Their quest is to understand and create the imperceptible. After all, there is plenty of room at the bottom. Hello and welcome to the Materialism Podcast, an exploration of the past, present, and future of material science. My name is Taylor Sparks, and I am an Associate Professor of Material Science and Engineering here at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. And I am joined today by two co-hosts who are going to help me learn all about the world of absorbing CO2, right? If we're going to get serious about tackling uh, CO2 emissions, one thing that we might consider is how we could absorb those and do something with them. I have Hayden Evans and Tony Cheatham, and I'll let them introduce themselves. Great. So my name is Hayden Evans. Uh, I'm a research chemist at the NIST Center for Neutron Research. And I'm Tony Cheatham. I'm a research professor at UC Santa Barbara, and I also hold a visiting professorship at NUS in Singapore. Fantastic. Well, thank you. I don't know where in the world everybody is. We're from all over the place. I'm glad we found a time zone where we could chat. Um, Hayden, I've known for a while, and he had reached out to me a while back with some really cool new findings that have been coming out of the work that you've been doing together on aluminum formate, a material that I'd never heard of before, actually. I'd never actually heard of this one, and yet it turns out to have a lot of interesting properties, and some of those are going to be relevant to some big challenges that we face as a society, namely CO2 emissions. So before we get started with aluminum formate, if some of our listeners were like me and didn't know what that material was, what its structure was, maybe we should start there. What is this structure? And why is that? What is it about the structure that makes it compelling or interesting to study? So in general, uh, if we think about this material and we know it's an adsorbent, many different types uh, of adsorbents, you can think of them as sort of surfaces. Um, but in particular, the types of compounds we like to, to study, they're more like sponges. So you can imagine some kind of block of material, but it has these holes and channels that sort of run through them. Aluminum formate is one of these types of adsorbents. It is porous, so it has places in its atomic structure where other molecules can slip inside of the void spaces that have been and defined in them. And, and more generally, we've been you know, interested in different types of adsorbents, particularly the type of crystal structure that aluminum formate has. Tony and I we're particularly interested in this for, for many, many years. And I'm sure Tony can sort of speak about his general interest on formates and more, more specifically sort of this larger crystal structure class. Yeah, if I pick it up there, um, I've been interested in these ABX3 perovskites uh, that have um, typical example might be dimethyl ammonium uh, zinc formate, and they adopt the classical ABX3 perovskite structure, uh, but in this case, the formate acts as the linker compared with the classical inorganic systems which, where you might have, say, oxide as the linker or a halide as the linker. And uh, actually, I started working on these things in about 2007 in collaboration with the late Sahari Kroto, who won the Nobel Prize for discovering fullerenes. And uh, we, Harry and I shared a student. Harry was at Florida State and I was at 
UCSB, we shared a student called Prashant Jain. And Prashant worked most of his time with me in Santa Barbara. And he inadvertently made single crystals of this dimethylammonium zinc formate perovskite. And it turned out that it had been made before. But this started a whole thread of work which uh, lasted nearly a decade when we discovered that they were ferroelectrics, they could be multiferroics and some, so on. Now, in this particular system, the cavities are occupied by the dimethyl ammonium. But uh, when Hayden and I were researching this article on the systems with the rhenium trioxide structure, which is a perovskite with no A cations in the cavities, we came across aluminum formate um, and it had been known for a very long time, but the crystal structure had been determined by a Chinese group. And there was something really intriguing about it, which is that when they did the crystal structure, they discovered that there was CO2 in the cavity, in the acyte cavity. And uh, so, in fact, the title of the paper that they wrote suggested that the CO2 was necessary to template the formation of this structure. Oh, is that true? Has that held borne out to be true? That's, well, it's probably true, yes. It's probably true because though people have made, uh, including ourselves, a number of analogues of aluminum formate and synthesized them, say with iron or with manganese or with gallium and so on, it's always got CO2 in the cavity. Oh, interesting. Some of our listeners might be familiar with the perovskite structure. Um, they probably saw it in their introductory course. Um, now, normally, if you take like ABX3, you've got two different cations. And in the structure, it's, it's, what's so great about it is that it accommodates big and little, right? Because you have a smaller cavity, right? Six coordinate, and you've got the larger 12 coordinate one. But in this rhenium oxide type structure, it's interesting in that you only have one of those cations, right? It, yeah. Because... Mm-hmm. The tungsten, for example, and some of these other materials can become six plus. It can actually electrostatically balance out the six minus coming from the oxygens. And so it occupies quite happily the smaller space, right? Something six plus is going to be really small. But then you've got these big cavities. And I, so that's where the CO2 is going, is in the larger cavities? Yeah, because the uh, bridging formates are much larger than, say, an oxygen in REO3 mm-hmm. itself, you get quite a large cavity. And, and so the Chinese group found that in the crystal structure, there was CO2 in the cavity when you made it. And so we had two thoughts, and this was work that we initially did in Singapore with a postdoc um, called uh, Dinesh Malangi, who worked with me. First of all, uh, could we remove the CO2 Mm. without collapsing the structure? And if we did that, could we, would the resulting material be uh, genuinely porous and could we reabsorb the CO2 into it? One of the particular interesting details about this Chinese work is that you could tell based on how they had written this paper that they were interested in removing the CO2 as well because they could appreciate that they this was a very interesting crystal structure. However, we 
from what we can infer from their the manuscript, and you never know how people write manuscripts. Are like, oh, I meant to do this, I meant to do that. You're like, you, you never know exactly if you're getting the the, the the true story or you're getting the written story. <laughs> but our perspective on it is that potentially that they were particularly interested in the iron compound, and when you try to remove the CO2 from the iron formate structure, it doesn't work. It doesn't work or it, it's very hard to do. And they gave like a crystallographic argument. They were like the hydrogen bonds of how the CO2 fits inside the cavity. They're just too strong. And anything smaller than iron, obviously they wouldn't have any success with doing it. But that's just not, that's just not the case. That the aluminum one is actually able to have the CO2 removed much easier. I can't say we've tried any of the other analogs just as aggressively because the aluminum formate was you know, the cheapest and, and easiest to make and well, yeah. well behaved. Why would you, why would you start playing with Indian yeah, or, or gallium? Yeah. Right. Well, I'm curious for our listeners that have never even considered molecules floating into an otherwise mostly inorganic uh, sort of structure and absorbing it like a sponge. How do you actually get that stuff out? Because uh, yeah, I'm not actually totally sure myself. I assume that you could just reduce the pressure and maybe some of it would degas. I assume you could maybe try and heat it up. Maybe you mm -hmm. could flush it out with a smaller molecule. Am I for, are there other approaches that I'm not thinking of? Well, they, in this particular case, the easiest way of doing it is to heat it up and the CO2 comes out. So that's what we did with the as-made material, which contains CO2 anyway. We gently heated it up and we studied the heating quite carefully and un, until we found that we could have a set of conditions where we could uh, remove the CO2 whilst preserving the crystal structure. And so we did in situ X-ray powder diffraction as a function of temperature. And you can basically watch the CO2 coming out. And it's repeatable. Uh, you can do this over and over and it doesn't destabilize so, it over time. Right. So then once you've done that, the CO2 will go back in. Uh, wow. It's got fantastic affinity for CO2. Because as Hayden mentioned, the CO2 hydrogen bonds in the cavity to the hydrogen atoms of the formate linker. Perfect. So you have hydrogen bondings between the formate hydrogens and the oxygens of the CO2. And it kind of exquisitely um, constructed so that this is a, more or less a perfect fit. And that's why the people thought it was templating the structure and, mm -hmm. and indeed it probably was uh, so um, and you once you've activated it and, and then you can uh, reabsorb co2 you can by taking the temperature down and then passing co2 over it and so on and then you can do that indefinitely and I think absorb and desorb I would say just uh, you know as you as you pointed out Taylor and many many of your listeners may not appreciate sort of the the field of absorbance or the kind of terminology we may use sort of in passing here. But you yeah, can imagine ahead. you can imagine adsorbent having these sort of cavities. And when you make these things, whether it's something like a zeolite, which may, many people might encounter, you know, day to day, you know, whether it be sort of kitty litter or you know other kind of you know, uh, kind of situations where you have these materials made out of silicon dioxide that are absorbing. Um, in that instance, sort of water. But any of these sort of generally, these absorbents, they may be synthesized or made, and they might have something sitting inside those cavities, or maybe they generally are pulling stuff from the air when they're made. But the general term used in this field is something called activation, 
right? You're activating your porous material so that there's nothing inside and then it's ready to suck up something, um, whatever you did, you know, the chemist or, or, or the person using it chooses to, to put into it, right? And so these general steps of activation are like, uh, you know, Tony sort of described. So heating, reduced pressure, or like you said, introducing some kind of molecule to flush it out, right? So you could pass gas, like nitrogen or, or, you know, that's a comical way to say that. Uh, you can, you can uh, pass gas over it like nitrogen or helium or something like that. Or if you're dealing with some, some of these other adsorbents where they may be made with these really um, tricky solvents, they might have something like these very heavy solvents like dimethylformamide that has like a boiling you know, point of about 160 Celsius, something nasty like that's up there. And so generally what they'll do is they'll wash it with methanol and methanol has like a boiling point of 60, right? So they'll swap out that one solvent for another okay. and then they'll okay. blast it with heat and, and reduce pressure and then you can create an open space again. So generally speaking, when it comes to these sort of, you know, I'm not a catalysis person, I'm not like an absorption person, but I'm kind of interested in this. But what I do know from catalysis is that that interaction, it's not just like the volume, right? It's not just like the size of the channel is the right size for it. It, it was that interaction. And in catalysis, it's kind of the same thing, right? You want it to interact, but not too strong. You want it to form a, like there's a, there's a sweet spot in terms of the bonding. Is it the same thing with all of your active absorption materials where there has to be that level of chemical affinity? Otherwise it won't actually stay in the structure. I think, yeah. Oh, Tony, you want to go ahead? Yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead on this. Uh, if the adsorption is too strong, uh, then you have difficulty getting the adsorbed molecules out. And uh, so, as you said earlier, you want to be able to, say, heat it up, remove the stuff, and then reabsorb. But if it's adsorbed too strongly, then you, you know, it becomes expensive to take it to quite high temperatures to get the molecules out. So, uh, in this particular case, the heat of adsorption is more or less perfect oh, yeah. uh, for a facile adsorption and desorption. If the heat of adsorption is too small, then the molecules don't want to go in. And uh, so the capacity is not as good. So okay. we hit a sweet spot, I think, with ALF. Hence why you got the great paper. We saw this in Science Advances. This was in November of last year. So... Um, Hot on the tails of that, I imagine that now you're wondering what else can it absorb? But another question I must have is like, okay, what if you were to modify the structure, structure slightly, either via doping or, you know, something else to try and can you make it, can you tune it chemically to interact with other species or to do something else? I imagine these are the types of questions that you've been following up with this. So I think that the beauty of aluminum formate is that, you know, Opposed to some of these other types of adsorbents, which have um, what, are, what are referred to as under-coordinated metal centers. So as Tony was sort of describing this sort of heat of absorption, right? When you have a, a, a metal center that might like to form six bonds, say, but then given the charge and sort of the kind of local environment and whatever crystal structure you put this in, maybe you can have something not attached to one of those bonds. And so it has sort of this open area where certain molecules can plug in uh, electrically or sort of like to hover next to sort of these open orbitals. That might have like a very strong kind of uh, interaction with whatever gas molecule have. And you can think about maybe switching the metals or changing the local environments. Maybe you can change sort of the intensity of how strong it comes in. However, in, in the case of ALF, there is no open exposed metal center. It is a it is a cage 
that is defined in a very specific way. And so the interactions that we're dealing with when we put certain types of gas molecules in are the kind of interactions you're getting with the hydrogens from the formate, sort of a hydrogen bonding interaction, or just generally sort of, you know, van der Waals kind of associations as they go hug up against the walls of the cavity. And so if you think about, in some sense, um, some adsorption onto a surface, maybe it's just some kind of, you know, potential on some surface. In the case of ALF, you have a cage that's defined by these multiple surfaces, right? So it's the, it's the combination of all these different sort of attraction uh, attractive forces that you can have with the molecule. So to your question, can you make chemical modifications? Yes, you can, but what you're changing in some sense, and this is, as Tony will will confirm, is that we, we at first we didn't quite understand why aluminum formate behaved <laughs> the way it did. We were generally confused by how something so simple can present so many interesting uh, properties. In the case of our first paper, which was the di discrimination from CO2 and nitrogen, right? Uh -huh. Nitrogen and carbon dioxide are very close together in sort of size, or at least, you know, kinetic, what they call kinetic diameter, how easy it is for something to sort of, um, you know, pass through, uh, or it's an approximated sort of size. Okay. Um, why it does that is actually intimately linked to the specific crystal structure of aluminum formate. So when you change part of the crystal structure, you can actually change how certain gases come in and out. And so we didn't really demonstrate this in the CO2 paper, but in the follow-up paper, as you were saying, we examined that oxygen can also go into aluminum formate. But if you change the crystal structure by incorporating something like iron to replace the aluminum, just a bit, you know, about half, um, a little shy of half of, of the aluminum switched out with iron, that you can actually change and distort the crystal structure in such a way that it's discriminating properties for certain gas molecules uh, starts to fade. And so, but you can, so that means that certain gases might be able to rush inside the crystal structure much faster than they would have been if you had just normal uh, aluminum instead of aluminum iron combination. Oh, killer. So, so you're if I could to chip in, please. Yeah. If I could chip, chip in on that, uh, when you dope with iron and say up to about 50%, you actually change both the thermodynamics of the absorption but you also change the kinetics. And so uh, we found that it was particularly attractive for enhancing the uh, kinetics of the adsorption of oxygen. As long as we got the doping level just right, um, so it would absorb oxygen and, and not nitrogen. Um, and of course, the first paper that you mentioned was all about the fact that nitrogen wouldn't go in. Uh -huh. um, so we thought, well, nitrogen's just a bit too big. So that gave us the idea that maybe oxygen, which is smaller, would go in. And then we could take oxygen from the air as an air separation process, which is extremely important, um, as we saw during the pandemic when there were shortages of medical oh, yeah. oxygen. So we were actually able to absorb oxygen leaving the nitrogen behind in, and uh, enhance the efficiency of doing that by doping with iron. So I have a couple questions. First off, when you, well, first, I'm surprised that you can dope it so much, like, but that's kind of the point of a lot of these perovskites is just how tolerant they are to, yeah. they're not, these are not line compounds, right? These are very accommodating structures because there's different size spots to put things and 
there's just a lot of flexibility in the structure as well. So you can go up to 50%. I assume you can go even further. Like how, how flexible are these structures in terms of doping? And that's my first question. And the second one, you're, you're messing with the, the cation, uh, the, the metal that's surrounded by the oxygens. But what about the formate itself? Have, have you doped the formate linker as well? Have you tried exchanging things there as well? Uh, not in the ALF structure. Uh, we have we have actually in some of the earlier work that Hayden mentioned earlier, we tried making hyperphosphite oh. analogs of of these uh, formates. And tried and succeeded. We succeeded. <laughs> yes, we did this when, when I was working at Cambridge. We did this. We made perovskite analogs of the uh, formates using um, hyperphosphite. And in part of that work, we also did mixtures of formate and hyperphosphite, uh, which, uh, you know, gave us uh, substitution, just as you were thinking. When you do that with the aluminum formate, it's, and we've not spent a lot of time on this, we've made the pure hyperphosphite analogs of the aluminum formate. We've not spent a lot of time on making the... uh, doped systems because we believe that the additional hydrogens on the hyperphosphite are going to fill the cavity and so it's going to reduce Mm, the capacity so that's even though it would be interesting and we'll get around to doing it at some point it's not high priority at the moment okay so so far we have this interesting material it seems to be templated by co2 when when it first forms but because of this sort of sweet spot and bonding, you can pull it out, you put it in, you can do this repeatedly. Um, it clearly has some affinity to other types of gas molecules, and that's probably tunable based off of how we can mess with the structure a little bit. What else can it do? What can't it do? What, have you run into limitations with it? I, I mean, yeah, it has limitations. But funny enough, those limitations turn out to be good, right? It has limitations in nitrogen discrimination, which is great because it means we can separate nitrogen from all these other gases. Additionally, it also has limitations um, in in absorbing hydrocarbons. And so as we we sort of mentioned here, this work on aluminum formate is not just Tony and I, it is involving Dinesh, but more generally uh, myself, Tony, and our many collaborators at the National University of Singapore that Tony intro- introduced us to, specifically Dan Zhao and Piero Canepa. And so Dan Zhao took the lead um, on, on some aspect of work showing how ALF can be used with hydrocarbons. And that was mostly because we our, our first paper on the, CO, on the CO2 discovery was just, it was held in review for a very long time. And so we were just doing work. We had other things to do as it sat in the reviewer's hands. So we just kept working, right? And we realized it could do lots and lots of things. So Dan Zhao showed that it absorbs CO2, but it does not absorb pretty much any hydrocarbon. And then the one of specific interest, or just the two would be of specific interest for multiple different um, applications would be methane. So methane is just a little too big to fit inside of aluminum formate, but you can but it's imagine still, it's still fairly close to CO two, right? It's 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 in the ballpark. I mean, it's a, it's. Uh, I actually don't know the kinetic diameter of methane. Do you know that? Off Sig- the top yeah, of it's methane? significantly higher than CO two. Hmm. Yeah, and so are these things found together in in drilling? Like, where where do you find these uh, things together where you'd want to separate them? Oh, where you in 
two areas, both of which are of great interest. One is in um, some of the natural well, uh, natural gas fields. Uh, so, for example, in New Zealand, there are natural gas fields that are rich in CO2. And um, there's another one I'm aware of in Botswana, a huge natural gas mm -hmm. field that's got a lot of CO2. So taking CO2 out of the natural gas is very attractive because you, you don't want to be using natural gas, say, as a fuel if it's already got a lot of CO2 in it sure. because it reduces the efficiency of the fuel. So that's uh, one area. The other area where you find natural gas with CO2, or methane is natural gas, of course, is in these uh, biotechnology digestion systems, you know, for taking food waste or agricultural waste, and, and then you break them down and generate biogas. And biogas has a lot of CO2 in it. And so... I think that this is a really sweet spot for using ALF uh, because the question is, what are you going to do about the CO2 um, so that you can use the methane? Yeah, there's um, another opportunity. A, a colleague of mine here does CO2 injection to stimulate wells. So if you're, if you're drilling for oil and gas, for example, and you have two places where you could access the well, if you inject a whole bunch of CO2, it can actually pressure it up out the other side, but you're poisoning your, your, your product in some cases with that CO2, but now you've got a way to clean it up again, which is pretty slick. Right. That would work for that as well. Yeah. So the, the thing that we haven't talked about yet, but is really what makes this material critically important is its cost. Um, aluminum, obviously, second, third most abundant element on the planet, right? It's going to be very cheap and formate is easy to make. So this is going to be an inexpensive option um, because it, it'd be one thing to say we can make this custom designer zeolite or whatever that's going to have this perfect sieve size to do just what you want. But if it's crazy expensive, you're not going to use this. I'm assuming that aluminum formate is going to be on the cheap side. It is as about as cheap as you can probably make something. As dirt? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I like to say this thing is, is dirt because, I mean, in some sense, it, it really is. And I, I remember when we first sort of published, I mean, we know it's cheap because you can just look up the prices. You can go on. I mean, the great, great sourcer of chemicals, which is Alibaba, you can go check how much if you want for like a ton of either formic acid and aluminum hydroxide. And they're on the ballpark of about a dollar per kilogram each, or you can think a thousand dollars per t metric ton for each of one of those two reagents. So there, there is some, that's just the reagents, right? So the reagent cost is cheap. One of the additional aspects of making aluminum formate is that it's just those two things and you heat them. And there are some, you know, minor parts of the synthesis, but as you were sort of saying, right, zeolites, if you make those, they're made of silica, but they, their synthesis can be kind of tricky sometimes, and they might yeah. even take weeks sometimes to crystallize them out. Or many of the, up until this point, metal organic frameworks, these other very large class uh, of adsorbents that have these under, generally have these underexposed metal centers. Um, and aluminum formate technically, and we would like to say is the simplest metal organic framework. But many, when many, many people think of metal organic frameworks, they're thinking of these very large designer yeah. organic compounds in the metals, right? The reagent cost for some of those things you know, they could be $100 per kilogram on a good day, right? And that depends on some of the metals you're using, whether it's like nickel, copper, you know, they could, the price goes up. And that doesn't even include the complications of the synthesis, right? So one of the major parts about why aluminate, alumina, aluminum formate is so interesting, or what we call ALF, right, 
is because it is so cheap. And like that makes it interesting in its own right. But the thing is that aluminum formate or ALF, you know, the activated form, can do these really, really challenging gas separations. So you not only have something that's, even if it was expensive, it's pretty well performing. But the fact that it's so simple makes this thing quite, quite significant, uh, we believe, scientifically, industrially, and potentially for the world. Can I ask, like, how do you actually make the stuff? You know, synthesis always gets overlooked, and I think that's a shame. But how do you make the stuff? Is this like a super high temperature thing? What do you do with it? Is it high pressure? Tony? No, you, you, uh, it's done hydrothermally uh, in an autoclave. Typically, it's about, say, 120 degrees C. And the beauty of it is that you only need two starting materials. You, you say, aluminum hydroxide. Uh -huh. and formic acid. And the formic acid is a liquid. You use concentrated formic acid. It's a liquid, and so it acts as both a reactant and a solvent. And the, one of the things that we've looked at quite carefully is the uh, question of where does the CO2 come from that gets trapped in the cavity when you make it? I assume it's a decomposition of the formate or something. So it's to do with the decomposition of the formate. So you have to have excess formic acid when you make it. And, mm -hmm. But you just need those two things, hydrothermal in a small autoclave or a large autoclave at about 100 to 130 degrees C. And um, What sort of pressures is that generating? Because I know, right, you boil things and that generates a lot of internal pressure. What are we talking about? Is this... Is this like oh, well, really extreme or not so bad? No, no, it's quite, it, it's a bit quite low, uh, you know, sort of maybe 10 or 20 atmospheres or something like that. But it depends upon the filling factor of the autoclave. Sure. If you have a small, yeah. Okay. So if you, if you have a small amount of liquid and large dead volume, then the pressure will be higher. There's also, as Tony, well, Tony hasn't said yet, you can make it in the autoclave, but in terms of scaling up, you can make this thing in a round bottom flask, no pressure outside of atmospheric pressure, no inert gas. You heat formic acid and aluminum hydroxide together for two days at 100 C and you'll, you'll get the clean compound at the end. Oh, killer. So, I mean, you, I know you sent one more paper about hydrogen storage, so we'll get to that, but... I just gotta know, like, is this being commercialized? Like, what's happening with this? This is a cheap material that does what you want it to do. Is there a company being formed around this? Uh, so far, we've not formed a company around it because we <laughs> we we felt like a, a kind of dog with four or five bones, <laughs> and yeah. so the the challenge that we're looking at at the moment is how to scale up the synthesis. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, yeah. I mean, Tony's Tony said this right. I mean, we're there. Uh, intellectual property has been been protected on the CO two capture and the oxygen purification and the hydrocarbon purification, and then also now the 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 hydrogen aspect of it, the hydrogen storage has been protected as well, right? So there's intellectual property that's been protected uh, in multiple instances here. So there's no one company. However, if we were to view this from the perspective of uh, non-capitalists, I think we can all believe that the work we've, we're doing here may actually do some real good. <laughs> somebody might get rich off of it, but I know for a fact that somebody might get much cleaner oxygen. Like cheaper oxygen, right? Cheaper yeah, oxygen in these in, 
clean up our fuel sources, mitigate the amount of CO2 we're putting out into the atmosphere. Um, and then, you know, uh, the other side, I mean, that's the coin, the, the two sides of the coin for aluminum formate, right? It sucks up CO2. You can choose to capture it from burning fossil fuels, or you can choose it to clean up your fossil fuels that I don't know, you more than likely will end up burning, right? So it's, 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 and then probably you use ELF to capture the CO2 that you use there, right? Yeah. Have you actually tested on flue gas to see if it actually works under the conditions that a, say like a coal-fired plant would have? Uh, we, no, we haven't, because that was the first uh, target that we set out to explore, and that was in the Science Advances paper. We've, we've, we've done simulated conditions, I see. Um, but the, the challenge with the flue gas, Taylor, is that flue gas is both hot and wet, Oh, and so water is going to complicate it, isn't it? So the water complicates it, yes. And under hot, wet conditions, you find the Achilles heel of ALF. Mm -hmm. um, so we've, we've been focusing on these other applications where uh, water is not going to be a challenge because either you can, you'd have a dry gas stream or you're not at higher temperatures and so on. Perpetually, this proves to be the problem for these large-scale CO2 capture, right? Okay, so if we imagine we have a fuel plant, right, and you're going to try and capture the CO2 using something, that's going to take a lot of money, and more than likely, all you're doing is you're capturing CO2, right? So how does anything get done in the world generally is somebody's doing it for a profit or, their profit, or there's going to be a subsidy from the government to do it for the greater good in, in, in some perspective, right? So there's no perfect material, I think is sort of the, the, the general feeling on uh, specifically CO2 capture, right? You either have something that's hyper expensive, but it can resist many of these sort of intense conditions, high humidity, socks and knocks, you know, capturing CO2 and discriminating against nitrogen at these higher temperatures, which all of those things combined is really challenging. And then you have to factor in, you actually have to do this, right? So it's going to cost money. Every fuel plant's producing yeah. something like 20,000 tons of CO2 every day. There's 300 of those in the United States, not including the rest of the world. So you have to think about this absolutely massive, like mind-boggling problem of capturing CO2. And if you actually want to do it, you have to scale something up and it's got to be relatively affordable to do it, right? So our argument with aluminum formate is that it's so cheap and it is so effective that more than likely you can get away with a drying step in it. And then this probably becomes the, what we argue is one of the most logical ways to tackle this kind of problem. Because outside of that, many of these other competing adsorbents are, you know, they're like about an order of magnitude more expensive. And then some of them might also suffer from water instability as well, right? So yeah. then- You still have the same problem. Do? Still have the same problem. So the last paper that we haven't gotten to yet is hydrogen absorption, right? So hydrogen is a lot smaller than NCO2. How are you getting that to go in there? Why? Because up till now, we've been taking the size argument and the bonding argument. So why is it able to also pick up hydrogen? Tell us about that. So, yeah, so I'll, I'll go ahead and take this. And so this work is, is, is kind of departs from many of the other sort of earlier discoveries, right? And so this was done by myself and Tanner and Craig Brown uh, at the NIST Center for Neutron Research. And then we sort of built a much bigger picture with our, our many collaborators. But the initial discovery was done, was done at NIST. And so we were interested, particularly because we, aluminum formate, if um, any of your viewers go and find sort of what the crystal structure looks like, since it's going to feel a little abstract, even we with our- We will post it in the uh, episode art. So take a look on the uh, podcast, wherever you're listening, you'll see the picture of it. Great. So you'll see the crystal structure and you'll see that it has um, sort of a small cavity. So we understand 
how gases go into certain types of materials. We know uh, an approximation of how easy or how, you know, the target size of some of these gases, that's referred to as a kinetic diameter. And so we know that hydrogen is a little smaller than most of these gases, right? And so we were interested, like we had a good hunch that it would go in, but we didn't know what it would do. And as a general feeling on sort of hydrogen absorbance, hydrogen storage is very challenging. And the reason for that is that hydrogen is very small. It hasn't got a lot of mass to it. It doesn't have a lot of polarizability, right? It doesn't have, it can't be sort of, can't move the sloshy electrons around because there's only two in them. And then generally, if you're trying to store hydrogen, you either cool it down aggressively, right? Really, really cold temperatures, or you use high pressures and you force it into something, or you do a combination of the two of those things, right? And so the perpetual, you know, Achilles, or the perpetual problem that sort of hydrogen storage or hydrogen technology sort of faces is, how do you move this thing around without wasting too much energy yep. storing it places, right? And that's, I mean, that you know, that's one part of the problem, right? Think about all the many aspects of a fossil fuel economy, storing the fossil fuels, moving the fossil fuels, burning the fossil fuels, dealing. That has like a, a massive economy sort of con connected to it. And the hydrogen economy is just only now being generated, right? One of those problems is what do we do when we store the, the hydrogen, whether in a car or in a big you know, box somewhere in a field to be used for, for grid storage, right? And so we took a look at whether or not aluminum formate absorbed hydrogen. And what we found is that it does. And it absorbs hydrogen um, at these strangely intermediate temperatures, right? And so we sort of alluded to some of these aspects about aluminum formate that it's a, it's a balance between thermodynamics and kinetics and some of these gases are being limited as to how fast they can permeate into the material uh, and whether or not they want to hang out in, in, in aluminum formate at all, right? And so what we found is that hydrogen both moves very quick through the material uh, at, at certain temperatures, at these elevated temperatures, because it's so small. And, but also because of this sort of very small cavity, what is referred to as like an ultra microporous cavity, right? So these sort of that the windows into aluminum formate are about 10 angstroms or anything sub 10 angstroms are about five or six wide, but the, the cavity itself is very small. So as I was sort of uh, describing earlier, you have these sort of six surfaces and there's two types of cavities inside of aluminum formate. The hydrogen itself finds a reasonably good home inside the material. And what that translates to is that you have a Intermediate temperature of storage, about 120 Kelvin, 160 Kelvin, right? So we're above liquid nitrogen. That's a major selling point, right? That you don't have to go down to these liquid helium temperatures to store hydrogen. But because aluminum formate is so dense that the amount of hydrogen you actually get into it is not these massive numbers, right? And so people might look at it. If you're looking at the straight metrics of some of these materials, you oh, might go, yeah. Oh, it doesn't absorb all this gas. Oh, yeah, that's moles per maybe gram or whatever your moles per gram. Is. Yeah, right. But because aluminum formate is so cheap, you need to normalize it based on dollar. And at that point, you realize that aluminum formate serves as an incredibly useful vehicle for grid storage because you don't spend a lot of money making all this material. You put it in a big box somewhere, and then you just blast in some hydrogen. And then you can lock it in there. You don't have to heat it up that much to get it out, you know, about another 50 degrees and you can start to play with, um, you know, releasing the hydrogen. But because it is so cheap, you end up with these really impressive metrics for how much it actually costs to store the hydrogen at these intermediate temperatures and lower pressures. Again, because aluminum formate is so 
dense. You don't need you, you well, you can't even get to sort of the advantages of going to these higher pressures. But because of the sort of you know kinetics and thermodynamics that you're working within this sub 20 bar range of hydrogen, which means not only is it very cheap and very effective for grid storage, but it also pairs incredibly well with fuel cells, which are generating about five to, or set to you know, be used about a five to 10 bar range, right? And there's not many materials that they've found that absorb hydrogen at lower pressures and at these moderate sort of temperatures. And then it's also so cheap, right? So what we've illustrated in our manuscript is both the science and technical aspect of how the material absorbs hydrogen, but also we've done something that many other people don't do, is that we, we decided to put up instead of shut up and we showed the money argument of what this actually means if you were to try and commercialize this. What is the cost? How does this compare? And we found that at this point, aluminum format is at least the only metal organic framework where we sort of see if we can expand that out to sort of absorbance that is cost competitive with compressed hydrogen of about 350 bar. So about a fraction of the, the pressure range. So, so cool. Well, today's episode, we'll wrap it up because it's going a little bit long, but we have five excellent papers that will be in the show notes, a nature of you materials where they talk about perovskites in general and the, all the wonderful things that that structure can do for us. Then the first paper in science advances where they, they sort of kick off discovery and then three Jack's papers in a row. So congratulations, guys. This is a nice work you've done. <laughs> um, and it sounds like we're just getting started. I am sure we're going to see more from this material and variants thereof. So this is really slick. Anything that you want to tell us before we part? Oh, there's one thing just to crystallize it out, Taylor, I wanted to just underline. Actually, ALF, though it's an excellent adsorbent, the only molecules that it will adsorb, uh, aside from, uh, say, the uh, noble gases, the small noble gases, mm -hmm. are uh, CO2, oxygen, and hydrogen. So if you really wanted a system that would... Uh, hits each of those three targets and won't absorb anything else at all, then, I mean, this is a miraculous system for the energy transition. So cool. Well, thank I, you both for joining me. Anything else, Aiden? No, no, I was just going to say more generally, I, I think that the, the, what this work kind of shows is that um, I had a PhD advisor in grad school who is Fred Woodle. He's a very famous chemist, and he was always reiterating the constant concept, which was keep it simple, stupid, right? Yeah. Keep it simple. You don't have to over-engineer something. You don't have to spend a lot of money, especially if you're trying to do something in the real world. Cost, cost comes down to pretty much the, the bottom line, right? Because you actually have to do it in the real world. So looking for these big problem solutions with readily made available things is not only, you know, pie in the sky, it is pretty much essential to the, as we move forward with the, this new future energy economy that we're trying to seek out. Okay. Guys, this was a total pleasure. This episode is sponsored by California Nanotechnologies or CalNano. If you've listened to the podcast, you know that we are big fans of them. We've done a couple episodes with them and I, as a professor, have used their services multiple times over the course of my career. They have some really great services. They've helped us with spark plasma sintering at an extremely large scale, way bigger than what you're thinking. They can make some huge components. I've always had great success with them. They turn out high density quality parts, <laughs> to order and pretty quick turnaround. Um, and they also have some other capabilities, including cryo milling. Check out our episode on that. We think that they're an awesome company and we're proud to stand by them as a sponsor of the show. 
The Materialism Podcast is also sponsored by Materials Today. Visit materialstoday.com to stay up to date on the latest happenings in the material science field and read some fantastic articles they have published. You can head over to elsevier.com to find out more about their journals, books, conferences, and related programs. Okay, thank you for listening to this episode. It was super fun to have you along. Uh, And as always, we would love to hear feedback from you. So check us out on Instagram. We are at the at materialism.podcast handle, or you can send us an email, materialism.podcast at gmail.com. And if you want to do me a huge favor, I would love it if you gave us a review. We are tantalizingly close to stealing that number one spot in the chemistry category. Nothing would make me happier than to have a material science podcast in the number one spot of our chemistry homies. So help make this happen. A review, share it with some buddies. That would just be super rad. Um, As always, we're grateful to the people that make the music for this. That's Alphabot and Colobite. They make some cool stuff. Check them out. And we'll see you next time. The inventors of fire, electricity, magnetism, iron, lead, glass, silk, cotton. The makers of tools, the captors of lightning, the architect, the engineer, the musician, are all beneficiaries of the materials of this world and are bound only by their imaginations in manipulating those materials.